Well, good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 129. We'll continue in our series on the Psalms, songs of ascents that uh, are leading us up to Jerusalem. Psalm 129, and the title for the sermon that uh, I chose was Finding Freedom from the Past. As you scan your eye down at this psalm, uh, it may seem a somewhat surprising passage for Palm Sunday. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of the story of the pastor who was getting up to greet his people on Easter Sunday morning and inadvertently began, Merry Christmas. Psalm 129, really? Yeah, really. Let's see how this fits with the theme of this season. So as we turn to God's word, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open your word to us and open our hearts to your word. Would you do this for your glory? In the name of Jesus, amen. So my friends, listen to God's word. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Well, this is one of those parts of the Bible where anyone with any degree of um, sympathy and sensitivity can begin to see why some critics of contemporary Christianity these days and of the Bible say that uh, religion can encourage a rather aggressive demeanor, our thoughts and even our actions. There are many people who are saying that these days. Now, this psalm is not one of those uh, which is... uh, Uh, That category of psalms, uh, the most startling of the imprecatory psalms, so-called. That is, psalms that call upon God to to judge. It's not the most startling of them. There there are far more startling of those in that category. But this psalm clearly has elements of that. There's a wish that God would behave in a certain kind of way, towards those who have behaved towards this psalmist and Israel and God's people in a certain kind of way. 
And so when we read this psalm, particularly on Palm Sunday, but at any other time of the year as well, we have to ask ourselves the question, what do we do with these raw emotions, with these statements in the Bible? Are those who criticize Christianity and all religion as being inherently violent, um, do they actually have something to say about these passages? Is there some element of truth in it? What do we do with these strong, bold statements which are so startling to us and seem strange? How do we deal with these kind of emotions? Well, there are different approaches that people have adopted. One of the most common uh, is to just forget about them. You know, only read the bits of the Bible that don't say things like this. Uh, John 3 verse 16, over and over again. And uh, let's read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 and, you know, let's pick our favorite bits. And especially at seasons like Easter, let's make sure that, you know, for any visitor out there, let's only talk about the nice stuff. But of course that doesn't really work. Because anyone with any degree of education at all knows there are parts of the Bible that are not so easy to understand. And particularly at Easter, we are dealing with atonement. Someone dies violently. Uh, And of course there are many who criticize uh, atonement theology these days and say that all of it is legitimating violence by the fact that it is a violent deed. Uh, they, they look even at the victory march of Jesus into Jerusalem, which we, we with low, loud hosannas, acclaim. They look at that and say, well, that is actually just a species of either-or exclusivism. You're either for him or you're against him. And uh, the kind of judgment statements that Jesus brings, the laments that he speaks over Jerusalem, these seem to them to be startling, if not an example of what they are meaning by saying that religion underlines aggression. So we can't just ignore uh, these things, for people think like this about them. We can't just put our head in the sand, blank over the parts of the Bible, and just say that, um, you know, it's all about love. Because there are parts of the Bible that are not all about love. Anyone who reads the Bible will know that sometimes God is described as having wrath against his enemies, or wrath, if you like. And, and so how do, we, how do we deal with that? How do we deal where there's a song here? This is a song, a song of a sense. A song that is sort of wishing that people will not get blessed. Oh, may they not get blessed. See, I'm singing like Moody. (laughs) Oh, may they not be blessed. You know, I mean, really? It it seems strange or silly, petty, pathetic. We can't just ignore it. But if we can't just ignore it and be a bit like Jefferson and take a pair of scissors to our Bible and cut out the bits we don't like, 
the, the other common approach doesn't work either. We can't um, explain it. We can't simplistically rationalize it. Now, what do I mean by simplistically rationalize? Well, the most obvious of a simplistic rationalization is to say that this is the God of the Old Testament, whereas the God of the New Testament is very different. Such a common idea, is it right? Well, there are all sorts of difficulties with that attempt to deal with this issue, this problem. Uh, You know, just to begin, most obviously, are we then saying that God is different between one testament and the other? Does God change between the Old and the New Testament? Is he a different kind of God? Uh, Really? I mean, what about Jesus being the same yesterday and today and forever? What about God being eternal? The unmoved mover, if you like that phrase. But even more than that simply such simplistic rationalizations do not make sense at a logical level, don't fit with what we know about God, neither do they make sense when you really, truly read the Bible that God is different between the Old and the New Testament. I mean, for instance, uh, when Paul in the New Testament urges the Roman Christians to forgive, to return blessing for cursing, uh, not cursing for cursing, to return blessing for cursing, what does he do? He quotes from the Old Testament. So he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. This is from the Old Testament. From the book of Proverbs. And so once we begin to read the Bible, we find that the Old Testament is full of the revelation of the love of God. We are told that he is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. One of the key words of the Old Testament, chesed, covenant faithfulness, covenant love of God. Everywhere in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. And then when we read our Bibles at the same time, we read the New Testament, we find that, uh, well, no one talks of hell more frequently than Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, right at the end of the New Testament, God's wrath against evil is described in, uh, frankly, scary terms. And so what we begin to realize is that the solution is not to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we like, which fit into our view of what we want God to be like, and therefore just have a different kind of idol. You know the phrase when uh, someone's doing Bible study in a small Bible study group, and they begin by saying, well, I like to think of God as, I like to think of God as, Well, how does God like to think of God? So instead of picking and choosing the bits that we prefer, defined by our own ideas, our own preferences, to actually look at what's in front of us and think for a moment, well, maybe it's actually saying something bigger and better than we could have conceived. Even if it's rather surprising to begin with. Could it be the case that this is saying something not beneath our own moral 
taste, but far above it. Could it be? Well, let's look and, and see. You see, who, what kind of person is this psalm dealing with? This psalm is dealing with someone who has experienced some pretty difficult stuff in their past, finding freedom from the past. Uh, you can see, can't you, they feel they've been a victim, they've been victimized. Uh, from my youth, all this has happened. They have been afflicted. Well, the question, you see, that you have to ask yourself if you are such a person or if you know such people, and of all, all of us have things in our past, how do we get over that? How do we get over a victim experience and not become a victim, if you like? I hate this, by the way, but you know what I mean. How does a person actually move out of the dark into light? How does such a person rejoice with Jesus on Palm Sunday and not shout crucify him on Good Friday? How does such a person not take revenge? How do they not repress that desire for revenge and just get eaten up with bitterness? You see, this is not a small matter, nor a purely personal matter. Every single one of us here this morning has things in our past that we need to get over and deal with and move beyond. But how? Especially as here, when the wounds have been really quite serious. So he says, the plowers have plowed my back. This is uh, verse 3. The plowers have plowed my back. They made long their furrows. It's a picture language, perhaps. Uh, wh- whatever it was that had happened, it felt like he had been run over by a tractor, as we would say, by a plow. Actually, it's possible that this is referring sort of literally to the tendency in the ancient world, or rather horribly, mistreating captives by using farming implements, uh, you know, plowing over people running them over in that way. It's possible. And once we talk like this, we begin to realize that this psalm is not just dealing with some petty issue that happened in our childhood or last week or something, but the really big stuff of life, the the war zones of our day. How do we we help a society move beyond those things? How can captor live with captive when the captivity ceases people have tried different things they've tried the Nuremberg trials is that the solution or is the solution the truth and reconciliation commission that happened after apartheid in South Africa or is the solution a sort of general amnesty Uh, you know do, do we sweep the matter under the carpet, a bit like they did in Franco's Spain after that? Or do we let it all come out and get healing through some sort of mutual gestalt therapy of truth-telling? And if that's the case, how do you know whether it's really the truth? Or do we seek justice through proper procedure in the legal system, human law courts? And if that's the way to do it, how does 
that procedure, not become the victor's justice now, so that the previous victims become the new victimizers. And the cycle keeps on going. Well, the solution, higher and better than we could conceive, the solution is found in two words in the original Hebrew and four in the English translation. The Lord is righteous, verse 4. The Lord is righteous. So you've had this great affliction, verse 1, from your youth. It's such a big deal that it's repeated twice for emphasis and greatly is put in the emphatic position to underline how bad it was. Greatly, greatly. It's repeated twice, as I say, from your youth. Uh, It's not so bad. You haven't survived. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here this morning and you wouldn't be the psalmist writing this psalm. Yet they have not prevailed against me. He's still fighting on. He's still living. But nonetheless, it overshadows his present. It's, It's going round and round his mind. He repeats it over and over again. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Why does it keep on going round his mind? Well, he feels like he's been stabbed in the back. Plowers plowing your back with long furrows. Stabbed in the back. And then verse 4, here's the solution. The Lord is righteous. What has he done? He has cut the cords of the wicked. And there's picture language there with the same plow thing. So the idea, I think, there is that the oxen, the animals that are pulling the plow over this person's back, attached with cords to this farming implement, the plow, those cords have been cut. So then you're free. Finding freedom from the past. Now when we begin to really delve into this, the Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked, we begin to see that the, the easy answer that, you know, you've just got to forgive people, which is the right answer, but when you just say it, it becomes, there's an assumption that forgiveness is easy. It's not. Obviously, Christians are called to love their enemies, pray for those who persecute them, and all of that. Obviously, our model is Jesus, who from the cross said, Father, forgive them, and was followed by the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who prayed, you probably know, very similarly when he was stoned and he was killed. But how? How do we actually live in the present, not be stuck in the past? How do we get released from having been victimized to not live as a victim? How do we, how do we forgive? Not easy. There's an interesting example of how profound this passage is for this issue of moving on uh, that comes from a book by someone called Simon Weissenthal. He's a, a Jewish man. He wrote a book called The Sunflower on the Possibilities and Limits of Forgiveness. And he recalls in this book how as a Jew he was asked by a former Nazi who had committed atrocities to come to that former Nazi's deathbed. And there he is at the deathbed, 
And the Nazi, the former Nazi, asks this man, Weissenthal, having told him all that he'd done, he confesses openly. He then asks him to forgive him as a representative of the Jewish people. There's a pause as Weissenthal tells the story. And then he walks away. Cannot do it. And the book that he, uh, that he authored is a collection of essays answering the question, what would you do? Well, what would you do? Uh, perhaps instead, walking away sounds easy. But then, have you really walked away if you have not forgiven? Has a new day really begun? Have you really risen on Easter Sunday morning if you have not forgiven? There's a story of three uh, ex-U.S. servicemen standing in front of the Vietnam Memorial, you know, the famous Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., the capital of America. And and they're standing there as friends, and one asks his friend, have you forgiven those who held you prisoner? And, of course, it's a big question. In the end, the other replies, you know, I will never forgive them. And then his friend says to him, well, it seems that they still have you in prison then, don't they? Oh, yeah. You see, it's easy to talk about forgiveness. It's not so easy to do it. How do you actually get out of the prison of your past? The Lord is righteous. And then the psalmist begins to move forward. And you see, as he moves forward, you, you and I both have to do what the psalmist does in the second half of the psalm, and you have to not do it too. <laughs> it seems to me that this second half of the psalm both functions as a model to follow and a warning to heed, particularly on Palm Sunday, and we'll see that. Why is it a model? It's a model to, to, to follow, to copy. Why? Because the psalmist is telling us that in his experience, God has set him free. So the Lord is righteous. He did set him free. And so he's telling us this to encourage us that God will be righteous in our lives too. Uh, It will be easier for us, better for us to let God be the judge. So judge not lest ye be judged. So it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. God knows the heart. We don't. We leave it up to God. The Lord is righteous. That's how not to take vengeance. It's to listen to this model of the psalmist saying, God will judge, not me. The Lord is righteous. That's one aspect of the model, to prevent vengeance by leaving it up to God. Another aspect of the model here is, I think, his his frankness. The emotional honesty, the reality, the authenticity, it is strong language. He's borrowing from the agricultural images of his day, saying that he feels like he wants those who have oppressed him to have no fruitfulness. Their harvest, he hopes, will be stunted. It won't be like a beautiful Midwestern rich field of wheat bending gloriously in the sun. 
No, he hopes it will be like grass growing momentarily on the mud roofs of the east, which when spring comes and then moves to summer, it quickly burns up, he hopes. And so there will be no harvest to gather. And so the traditional greeting that, that was given to harvesters that you find all the way from the book of Ruth, the Lord bless you, the blessing of the Lord be upon you when harvest is seen. He hopes that will not happen. Just silence. It's just very real language. And in some ways, he seems to me to be a model for us then, not only of leaving up to God, the Lord is righteous, that kind of theological conviction, but also the emotional honesty about his feelings as he does that. See, he's not bottling it up and stewing over it inside and pretending he doesn't feel like this. But then nor is he emotionally letting rip in the office at a home with his anger. No. This is between him and God. This is a devotional place. This is why, another reason why Bible reading and prayer is so important. You can tell God what's really going on inside and then as it were as your encounter God through prayer and his word be brought back to the right place if you like the sting of his feelings is being drawn by God in that devotional realm he's telling God how he feels trusting God to discern the right from the wrong in those feelings leaving it to God the Lord is righteous So that, as it were, on the other side of those feelings of vengeance, now given to God, comes the possibility of forgiveness. So he's a model. Yet as soon as we say that this is a model, we begin to realize, can you see that there's also a warning in it as well? It seems awfully close to petty vindictiveness, doesn't it? You see, this is one reason why we have to have a subtle approach to the different types of literature in the Bible. Not everything that is felt or said or sung in the Psalms is because it is a model for us to feel or say or sing. So it functions here to some extent like a sign on the road saying, bridge out, don't go here. It should be here in the Bible, but it's a warning to us in some degree as well. Some of the Bible is written as some of the history portions as well. This part of the Bible, some of the history portions of the Bible are written as warning. So there's a a warning here to those of us who have significant power over others. Perhaps you're a business owner or CEO or a school teacher or politician. The kind of anger that you find simmering here is what happens when Someone feels like they are being kept down or mistreated. Humans are immortals. And when they are treated as slaves, they are tempted to turn the affliction upon those who have afflicted them. It's only natural. It is the way of things. It's a warning for us when we have power. And to be grateful if we do not, that this temptation to misuse it will not be ours. It's also a warning to us if we feel we have been afflicted. 
It's very easy to give in to those feelings and lash out and wish in our hearts that one day they will get what they deserve. Uh, It seems to me that C.S. Lewis is particularly profound here in his reflections on the Psalms when he notices the kind of vindictiveness you sometimes see in the Psalms is only really possible for someone who has developed a sense of right and wrong. Those who still live in a world where they expect everyone to behave selfishly and think there is no judgment to come can just live as if there is no comeuppance of any kind whatsoever. This, he argues, is a lower and lesser sin to think there is no truth and no right and no wrong. But for those who realize and have been awakened to the fact that the Lord is righteous, Well, there comes a greater possibility as well as a greater danger, warning. So he writes, it is great men, potential saints, not little men, who become merciless fanatics. And those who are readiest to die for a cause may easily become those who are readiest to kill for it. How prophetic do those words sound today? Not that there's any wish for killing here, but then comes the final model warning blended together. Very startling on Palm Sunday. So he says, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you, we bless you in the name of the Lord. Uh, Those who have been to thousands of Palm Sunday services over the years may recognize some of the strange resonance of these words. I'm not saying those who thronged his way and sweet hosannas sang and said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, were directly quoting from this passage against the grain, as it were, though these psalms were in all likelihood sung by the pilgrims up to the feast at Jerusalem. But it is at times like these that you realize, to again quote Lewis, what a strange tissue of quotations of the Old Testament, the New Testament is. With the blessing of Ruth to the harvesters, to the blessing of the king, to the hosanna and blessing of Psalm 118, save us we pray, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we bless you from the house of the Lord. To the shouts of acclamation of the crowd on Palm Sunday, before their different kinds of cries on good Friday, this psalm, with its denial of the blessing of the Lord be upon you, we bless you in the name of the Lord, is directed at those who rejected Christ coming riding in on a donkey. Is there some Pharisaic spirit here? Self-righteous spirit The spirit that looks at all the children singing Hosanna and tries to get Jesus to stop them. And he says, if they stop, the stones themselves will cry out. Model and warning. Model because it takes us to trust that God is righteous, to be honest with our feelings before God. And therefore helps us draw the sting of our own vengeance. 
warning because how easy it is to make a case of mistaken identity (laughs) and instead of personally and privately saying to God, this is actually how that affliction of my past made me feel, instead of that saying to someone who is afflicted and smitten and had nothing attractive in him to make us look at him with blessing, to say to him, not blessed, but the reverse, and to try to stop others from acclaiming him the Lord, the righteous one. Model, warning, redemption. Somehow here in this strange incongruity, a congruity is formed that our past afflictions can be taken to him as the Lord, the judge, who will judge justly both our afflictions and our affliction of others, both our oppression and the times we have oppressed, both our blessings and our cursing, our acclamation and our cry of crucify. Somehow, in a strange moment of atonement, transformed. You see, getting over our past is really all about having the cross at the heart. Those wounds we have received can be either taken to the cross and there judged by God as wrong or left to fester inside as a seed of hell in our lives that will germinate in eternity. Forgive for you have been forgiven. How? We cannot just let it go, but we can watch it get crucified, nailed, hung, dead, and risen to new life and a new future you can be. But we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves. That's Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Let's pray together as we consider this passage finding freedom from the past. Father, would you help us to take it to you as the righteous God and so to walk along the way to Jerusalem and see at the cross our wounds the curses we have received Killed, crucified, and to see at the cross 
our self-righteousness, the wounds we have given to others, taken there as well. Through the power of the cross to move on to a new day of grace and forgiveness. We pray this will be true. We ask the power of your spirit and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.